This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Did an animatronic gopher save one of our favorite movies from the 1980s? Well, we're waiting. Once again, it's time for the idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of idiots. My name is Will, and joining me as always is my friend and co-host, Ray. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. So hey, today we have a very exciting episode today because Ray and I are going to be talking about the I guess at the time it wasn't big news. It wasn't well received. Certainly wasn't as well received as other films during the same year. Uh, but we're going to be talking about the now cult classic film Caddyshack. And a little bit later, we're going to be speaking with one of the stars of Caddyshack and other films, Cindy Morgan. You know, we didn't have any banter. Do we need banter? No. What do we need banter for? We got 20 minutes of banter coming up right here. So before we get to any of that, let's get caught up on 80s news. So the pandemic may be, you know, presenting us with some challenges as far as broadcasting. It may be keeping performers home, but it has not slowed down 80s news because just like our premise, and you you know, we say this often, there's still so much happening today that is connected to our favorite uh, media from the 1980s. Starting with, this will really get you excited, and I put that in air quotes, Spyglass has announced that its Hellraiser reboot has found its writing-directing team. So yet another 1980s film is getting the reboot treatment. This news comes to us from The Hollywood Reporter. The filmmaking team behind the Sundance Film Festival sensation The Night House are reuniting to tackle Spyglass Media's reimagining of the horror classic Hellraiser. So I guess starting with the original, a fan of uh, the 1987 film that introduced us to the puzzle box? Yes, the original is an amazing film. Um, that reserves more than what they're going to do to it, I'm sure. Anytime you see the word reimagining, yep. that's not good. One encouraging thing I see here is that David Goyer, who was also a producer of Nighthouse, but has done a number of different things, and uh, all of which escape my mind right now, is writing the story at least. So maybe that's got something. The one thing that I do notice that seems to be absent from this update uh, on this is the lack of the mention of Clive Barker. Well, they, they probably pushed him out. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder about that. Because they want to make too many changes to the story. I hope not. I mean, if you recall, the original, you know, obviously the original was written by Clive Barker, adapting his own novella, The Hellbound Heart, but he also directed it. And, you know, before he ever directed anything, he was known for these, uh, for his horror novels. So, yeah, it's disappointing that Mr. Barker might not be involved, I guess, just quickly scanning this here. Yeah, I'm assuming they made radical changes to the story they didn't like. So it's probably updated for the new generation. So they probably took out a lot of things that made that really work. Well, hey, we know we're not going to be seeing it anytime soon because, you know, nothing's being made right now. But fingers crossed. Wait for all the quarantine uh, horror movies to start coming out in 2021. Oh, and they are, are they about uh, some kind of virus, right? I mean, uh, I'll guarantee you there's going to be a bunch of movies about people stuck in the house together during the quarantine. Mm. And 97% of them will be horror movies. Mm. Oh, okay. Hey, could be good. I mean, right now, right now it doesn't feel... Unlike we're living in a horror movie sometimes. Okay, that, that, that's exaggerating. <laughs> Although I, I've said this before, I think it's true. When I go to the grocery store, it does feel a little Night of the Living Dead or some kind of zombie movie for two reasons. And I, and I realized earlier, whenever I have, I'm about to explain something to someone, I always have two reasons for it. So that the first, it, hey, it just works out that way. But the first thing being that you, you, you're running to the store, you do, I do feel like, you know, I've got, it, it's like running for supplies on The Walking Dead, you know, or Dawn of the Dead. And the second thing is a lot of people are walking around like zombies because they're ignoring each other. You know, they're kind of milling about slowly and in a cautious way. That's seems not unlike a, a quarantine horror movie already. I'm still running through the grocery store. <laughs> 
Now I see you more than that's like the vibe of uh, you know a more a more current zombie film. I could see you, you know dashing through like uh, uh, what were the films with uh, Jesse Eisenberg and uh, Woody Harrelson? Uh, Zombieland. I, to me, it feels more like a like a Mario Brothers kind of thing. I got that music going oh. through my head. <laughs> do 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 do. Yeah. Ba-ding, 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 ba-ding. You're that mean. I got the eggs. Yeah. Dodging all the fire. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of movies, uh, unfortunately, a number of our 1980 films, sequels that are set to hit or, or, or otherwise related to 1980s, are set to hit this year or have been postponed. So the last time we talked about them, Wonder Woman had been pushed back to August, which disappointed me because I hoped it was going to be released into our homes, which we, would have been uh, very convenient for me. Uh, and nothing else had, but now we've learned that some others have been pushed back. So Bill and Ted has survived. It's still, as of the as of the last update I looked at, it's still going to be uh, released on August 21st. But Top Gun Maverick, which was going to be released in June, on June 24th, is now going to be released on December 23rd. And along with that, the biggest change, I suppose, is Ghostbusters, which we were all excited to see in July of this year, has now been pushed back to March 5th of 2021. This is ridiculous. Yeah. I I need some new movies. I need Ghostbusters right now. So if you could, would you settle for it having, you know, like the the Trolls uh, World Tour? Uh, That film came out, skipped the movies. It came out last weekend, right to streaming. No. No, no, absolutely not. I want to see Ghostbusters in the theater. So you're willing to wait uh, till next, basically a year away. Uh, Yeah, I'll wait till May. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, put that thing out in May. I'll be in the theater by myself. That's fine. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not as patient as you. I I would definitely take it at home to see it sooner. I mean like this May. Oh, oh. (laughs) I mean like next month. Well, yes, I know. Yes, you're ready to go. Yes, you, you scared. Speaking of zombie movies, this weekend <laughs> I was doing some work in my garage and, and look up. I made the mistake, I think, of leaving my garage door open while I did that, which generally in our neighborhood, which I only learned from you because you know I've never lived in a place like this before. What you told me early on when we met was if you leave your garage door open, it means you're, you know, you're, you're open to visitors. If you have it yes. closed, it means you're not friendly, I suppose. Or, or <laughs> Yeah, busy. so... So Will's garage door is closed like 97% yeah. of the time. Closed to visitors. Yeah. Well, yes. It, and actually, mostly it's closed closed because it's been like, you know, it's looked like a, one of those uh, storage, uh, you know, storage, uh, what do they call it? Like rental units that um, they, um, what are those places that, that show that, uh, gosh, you know, this is what happens when we record, I'm going to say late Wait, at night. What are you doing? Um, Mythbust- it yeah. looks like a Mythbusters workshop. No, what is-, is that what you're going for? Oh, no, no. That other one, That's it's like a storage thing where if they don't pay the oh, money, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. they yeah, pop the lock the, off and then they uh, sell it. Saw, saw, where he makes all those, those things <laughs> no. to kill people. Well, true. It has gone that way. But I, Oh, Storage Wars. That's what I was thinking of. They ah. pop the lock off and they open it and they, you know, it, it does look like, uh, kind of like the, the uh, garage in uh, Silence of the Lambs, you know, where Buffalo Bill kept his, 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 his uh, treasures or whatever. Um but I'm cleaning it and working it out. I made the mistake of leaving the door open because it was a nice day, only to look up and see Ray standing right there. You can hear like, you know, the violence or the boom, some kind of thud. <laughs> um, so, yes, I know you're anxious to get out of your home, uh, if only to to terrorize me. But, yeah, to a movie theater. I, I'm not as patient. I, I would see it as I, Hey, I was a respectable at least eight feet away from you the whole time. That is 100% true. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And you're right. Well, my wife came out, didn't we? Didn't you think that she was going to chase you away? Because I thought so. Or she was going to say some kind of comment that was a passive aggressive message to send you away. No, I think she probably looked out the window first to make sure I was my distance that I should be. Oh, I see. Had I actually been in the garage doing things and touching everything, yeah, I got yelled at. But I wasn't. Yep. See, I have it to my good fortune now that you're not a hugger. So, you know, I got that going for me. Yeah. Which is nice. Hug, hugging's bad. That's how you get sick. Yeah, that's why you don't ever get sick. Okay, hey, in other uh, 80s news, and this is a, this will be a short one, and then we'll move on to an even more interesting story, I think. But I wanted to let everybody know, hey, you know, looking searching for content, well, hey, CBS is bringing back the Sunday night movie. So, you know, years ago when we didn't have cable, and you, this is how we saw movies, right? They'd be on one of the major three networks. Well, CBS is bringing that back, which is great because not everybody has cable. Not everybody has great internet. Um, you know, there's there's folks who still have to go to the big three networks uh, to find movies and other types of content. 
And the networks are now struggling too for content because many of their TV shows that they had planned, uh, you know, are not going to be in production anymore. Um, so the good news is the first uh, movie that's going to be shown on May 3rd of 2020 is Raiders of the Lost Ark. And even though I own it, yeah. I'm still going to watch it on TV. Yes. To show my support. Yeah. And it, when, when you're a kid, right, there was something exciting about seeing a movie on TV, uh, mm-hmm. even though it had commercial breaks. That was okay. It gave you a chance to run in the if, bathroom. I was going to say, if you remember, how much fun was it when the commercial would start and yeah. you'd go ripping through the house yes. to get to the bathroom or get the popcorn or whatever? Yes. Let me know when it's back. Let me know when it's back. Right, right. And you're in there and somebody's screaming. Yeah. It's starting. Yeah, right. Sliding across the linoleum in your socks just to yep. make it in time. Mom's making the Jiffy Pop or, or someone's burning the Jiffy Pop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, and among some of the other films that we know are coming out include Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So the bookends of the the best Raiders. Every movie they made is awesome, and that's another one that bums me out that it got postponed as uh, the new indie movie. Yeah, whether or not Harrison Ford will be uh, hmm, physically able to be be a part of the film by the time they're I'm, able to film I'm, it. Yeah, I'm extremely worried now that he will not be able to make the next movie. They got to do some, you know, mocap. They got to laser scan his face, all that kind of stuff so they can recreate him. Yeah, hopefully that's what they're doing while he's in quarantine. They just have yeah. a big machine <laughs> following all day long, recording everything he says. I want I want to see them go full Westworld. I'm talking HBO Westworld where they're making yeah. him in a vet. Oh, yeah, that's coming. I hope. And a young Harrison Ford steps out. Yeah, he can actually do the, the prequels himself. So we've got that to look forward to on May 3rd. I'll be watching it as well. And then the final thing I wanted to talk to you about was controversial as controversial as george lucas changing star wars to for dumb reasons uh this comes to us from the verge and the title is disney plus's butt cover-up hides a much bigger problem Uh, and the story goes on to explain how in the very least starting with the 1984 film splash disney has made some changes were you a fan of Splash? I like Splash a lot. Me too. I remember seeing that as a kid. I wanted to meet a mermaid girl. Yeah. I wanted her to save me from drowning. <laughs> I wanted her to look like Daryl Hannah. Yeah, the, the problem we got here is is that th- this isn't a new problem, by the way. This has been this is a Lucas and Spielberg problem. Yes. They kind of created this, but I think Disney's gonna take it to the extreme. Uh this terrifies me. So what we're referring to is they eliminated one of the best parts that we enjoyed as thirteen year old boys in 1984 when we saw it is they digitally edited the scene where Daryl Hannah runs across the beach and dives back into the ocean and you get a brief scene of her naked behind they've now made her hair look longer to cover up her you know buttocks yeah this is ridiculous this is similar to if when they take the f-bombs out of stuff yeah, it, it, oh, they did that to another movie too. They yeah. actually they took the f bomb out. They, they took an f bomb out of Adventures in Babysitting. That's yeah, that's the other thing they did. See, I don't understand why they have why they think this is necessary. Yeah, I, I don't. If either. if they want to do that, then make an ABC. I think they own ABC, don't they? Disney. They do. Yep, and they own they Hulu could, too. Yeah, and they own Hulu. But if you want to edit, you want to you know do these censored versions, do them on TV. Yeah. Yeah, don't film on a service that people pay for. Right. And if and if you want to, you know, keep the integrity of the film but maintain a certain streaming service that is, you know, quote family, I guess, oriented or friendly, then put Splash on Hulu as this article points out. Yep. And the other things like that they and you don't have to edit them. And and to add insult to injury, and this already ticks me off, is the hair they added digitally looks very odd. It looks like her ass suddenly has a mullet like from her hips down. So, so you're saying they just dumped it off on an intern, <laughs> and that guy was like, "This is good enough." They didn't have the best folks at ILM working on this, but you know what? Anybody, any kid could probably do this with some uh, After Effects, you know, on their home computer. So, yeah, I would encourage everybody out there to get their teenagers to fix this for them. Yeah, I'll put it. Go put, ahead, <laughs> go ahead and re-edit this scene <laughs> and post it on your little uh, pages or whatever you got there, your Twitters and your. Are they, Instagram pages. Are they putting her naked butt back? Is that what you're saying? No, they have to come up with a better way to cover her butt. Oh, I see. Than the rug that they threw on. I her guess back. you could just put pants on her, or a bathing suit. Yeah, uh, yeah. They could have a bird fly by. They could have a, <laughs> a, a seagull. Have it's a, a seagull. 
They could have a, a random volleyball <laughs> enter the scene. <laughs> and make it have the face of Wilson on it since Tom Hanks is on the beach. Nice Easter egg. Oh, yeah. They could actually have uh, Goose and Iceman run over to get the ball. I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. if you're, if you're going to go that far, just go that far. And while you're doing that, they'll put shirts on those guys. Oh, that's the best part of the movie is you're sitting there going, why are these guys all oiled up playing volleyball? Yeah, but hey, look, this, this is the thing, right? They're selectively editing things. So yeah, we'll have half-naked men. We can't have a woman's butt. We have, as this article points out, however, they haven't censored Hulk's naked behind in Thor Ragnarok. So I don't even, I don't understand the guidelines. Like, who are they protecting? And why are we scared of nudity anyway? You know, this makes me think of what we were talking about um, the uh, songs recently from the, the, the PMRC. Mm-hmm. They were supposedly going after satanic verses, you know, essentially, pun intended. But but they had songs on there that were just because they were sexual. Why are we so scared of sex and naked bodies in this country? We all have them. Well, not the sex. Uh, I have no idea. Don't know. In language, right? I mean, even the F word is just a word, as I, as I avoid saying it on our show, but, you know. Yeah, F-bombs are fun. I don't know. I don't know why they can't be in everything. This... Uh, this whole thing just really upsets me. I, it, you know, for me, it began with the Star Wars thing, but art, and, and I've pointed out this before, there's a great documentary, The People versus George Lucas, which it, it's specifically about Star Wars, but asks this broader question. Once an artist puts, you know, sells a painting or it's hanging in a museum, it doesn't belong to the artist anymore, does it? It belongs to uh, the world. Uh, <laughs> Could you imagine them just walking up into a museum with a big thing of paint and going, I'm just going to redo yeah. that smile on the Mona Lisa because right? it really came out lousy. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it was Da Vinci himself was still alive, they'd be like, whoa, 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 dude. It's been hanging there for a while. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we kind of like, like it the way it is now, but no, no, I'm just going to paint right over the original. It's gone. I, we're ending the 80s news on a very frustrating note. I realize I should have. That's okay. It's fine. Because now we're, he- we're headed into a good topic. Yes. Let's talk about something more pleasant. Uh, uh, after this. So that was 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. Yes. Let's talk about something more pleasant with regard to films. We're going to be speaking uh, today, a little bit later, with Cindy Morgan, star of Caddyshack, and at least another favorite of ours, Tron. Oh, yeah. But before that, and she's got some great stories to tell about both those films, and we touch base on a great number of things. But before that, we're going to talk about uh, Caddyshack, the film specifically, because, you know, like we talked about when it first came out, it, it wasn't as uh, beloved as it is as it is now. So Caddyshack, it was originally released on July 25th, 1980. And like we mentioned, it wasn't a huge success at the time. In the year of 1980, it actually finished 17th, netting nearly $40 million. The number one film that year crushed it with $209 million. Do you remember what that was? 1980. 1980. Yeah. Come on. It's got to be a big one. 209 million. That was probably a record at the time. I'm drawing a blank. Maybe part of a franchise. Uh, the only thing that comes to my mind is Smoking the Bandit, but that's not 80. Yeah. And that, that I don't know. I'd be surprised if that broke uh, you know, 80 million. Are you kidding me? At the time that, it came out? That movie probably made a, like 500 million when it came out. Right. Now that I know you're being ridiculous, I won't. No, I'll still, uh, I'll still well, Google right. it. I'll what, still what, Google what? it. <laughs> <laughs> Just because I'm a curious fellow. What what movie are we talking about here? We're talking about Empire Strikes Back. Oh, yeah. How did I forget that one? Yeah. So that came out in 1980 as well, and that, you know, crushed it. So Smoking the Bandit, it says uh, release date uh, 1977, domestic gross was $126 million. Uh, that's That might be the life, a, lifetime gross, but probably a lot I was, of those. I was in the ballpark. So, yeah. So Empire crushed it, but... In the years since 1980, it's become so beloved from for you know for so many people, and it, I was surprised that at least in my s- small you know uh, anecdotal s- study, it crossed genders. Even my wife is a huge fan, for example, and I was surprised at that. She doesn't love golf. Uh, well, I, I don't like golf either, so <laughs> but she loves this movie, and it's hard not to like it. So everybody knows the film, right? So maybe maybe mm-hmm. what would be most interesting in the in the time that we have here is to concentrate on some of the more unusual aspects of the behind the scenes production that brought this film uh, to life. Because in many ways, it almost wasn't the Caddyshack we know. Well, if you think about it, really, the movie shouldn't be called Caddyshack. It should be called Bushwood. Okay. Because as you know, the original story was supposed to be about the caddies. Right. Thus the title. Right. But that's not how things went down. 
because you you have who who do you have in the movie? You have Bill Murray, mm-hmm. Rodney Dangerfield, Chevy Chase, and Ted Knight. Right. These are all heavy hitters. You're going to have them make cameos. That don't make no sense. Yes. Yeah, so, right. Originally, um, Caddyshack director and co-writer Harold Ramis, who was also the co-writer of National Lampoon's Animal House, along with Caddyshack co-writer Doug Kenny, had this idea, along with Brian Doyle Murray, to do, essentially do, Animal House on a golf course. And pitching that to a movie studio, it was immediately green-lit. The story, though, was originally autobiographical because, as you know, the Murray family spent a lot of time uh, at the Indian Hill Country Club in the suburbs of Chicago as kids, where they caddied and did a number of other jobs. Uh, you know, I think it was Brian Doyle who also, you know, worked at the hot dog stand. So, yes, and then you're right. The studio said that they wouldn't make the film unless they actually got a star, and they were able to secure um, Chevy Chase, and they were off and running. The studio originally wanted Don Rickles in the Rodney Dangerfield role, but when Rodney Dangerfield came and auditioned, he did some. He did a really unusual audition, at least you know if you believe these stories that are told, where he actually came into the audition, dropped his pants, and said, uh, "Let's get dinner," something like that. <laughs> something like that. This is Rodney's first movie, right? Which boggles my mind because he's so good at it. Yeah, prior to that, folks knew him from his many, many dozens of appearances on The Tonight Show, where he would do his stand-up, back when that was a thing. I don't know if they have stand-up comedians on these late-night talk shows anymore, doing a, you know, doing a set, but uh, back then it was huge, and it was huge even into the 90s, though it was pretty big. Most folks only knew him from there, but yeah, he did a great job. Uh, in, they essentially let him be himself with his uh, you know, cat skills type uh, comedy. Uh, in his uh, one-liners. In fact, uh, I did read a story that um, Ronnie was concerned on the set that while he was doing his jokes, no one was laughing. So he thought he was bombing and wasn't doing a, do, doing a good job. Um, but then he was assured by one of his co-stars, the... Uh, uh, like Tony D'Annunzio. Yeah, D'Annunzio. D'Annunzio. That yeah. actor assured him, if people were laughing, it would ruin the scene. You know, so... Uh, like, yeah, Scott Columby. Scott Columby, right. So for, for his first movie role, Rodney did a fantastic job. But right, in addition to him, you got Chevy Chase, you got Bill Murray, who originally uh, was only going to be, what, like one scene, I think. So essentially, he was going to have a cameo, right? Yeah, they had him for six days. That was it. And I think originally, I think originally they had him, I think it was one scene, and then they were able to talk him into six days when they realized how fantastic he was going to be. Well, yeah, it doesn't hurt when his brother's one of the writers and, you know. Yeah, and his good and buddy he, Harold Ramis is uh, yeah. directing. I mean, and he's not going to let Chevy steal this one either because they got that bad blood between them. So. Right. So that, that's another cool thing about this movie is, is they're both so good in this. Mm-hmm. I think it's because they are trying to one-up each other the whole time. Well, I wonder, because as you know, another thing that's, you know, another point about how this wasn't originally the movie that it turned out to be, thank goodness, was because of a studio note, we have Chevy Chase and Bill Murray in a scene together that otherwise didn't exist uh, until that, you know, that suggestion by the studio heads that, hey, you've got two of the biggest stars in the world, the funniest, you know, upcoming stars here of the 1980s. They're not in a scene together, though, so far. You got to get them in a scene together. And because of the bad blood they had, uh, and the story goes that, uh, well, Bill Murray replaced Chevy Chase on Saturday Night Live. Essentially, when Chevy left, Chevy returns to host Saturday Night Live, and the details get a little fuzzy to me after that, but somehow it seems like backstage Chevy Chase is now you know, fist fighting with Bill. They're, they're, they're throwing down. That's, that's what I've heard. Yeah. They, they had a fist fight backstage. That's what I've heard. So folks are wondering, can we even get them to, you know, behave and be professional? But, you know, sure enough, Harold Ramis takes them to lunch, you know, during a break, one of the shooting days and says, we want to do this scene. And like, you know, uh, consummate professionals, they say, sure, no problem. And and the whole scene is improv. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, they, that's, that's amazing. They're given a few notes about, hey, we need to hit these certain story points. We need these details to come out for the purposes of the story. Otherwise, go crazy and... You know you can let them go crazy because both of these guys are just off the cuff brilliant. And the scene is like one of the best parts of the whole film. And and you would think it was written that way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Some of the best lines. Now, I don't have a good memory for quotes and lines of movies. I do know some from Caddyshack, <laughs> but there's some great lines in that scene alone. I'm trying to think. Chevy says something. Oh, uh, you know, the little things where every Chevy Chase says uh, to Bill Murray, um, Bill Murray's worried that they're talking behind his back. 
<laughs> yeah. And, uh, oh, they say these bad things about me. And Chevy says, no one is saying that as far as you know. Yeah. Something Ellie like also says, says uh, you got a pool up there? Oh, yeah. And, and Chevy says, yeah, I got a pool. I got a pond. I think the pond would be better for you. Yeah, a pool or a pond, either would be good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh, so many things. So, um, yeah, so that's another tidbit. So, yeah, and speaking of things, and, I, you know, I, I hate when we're sort of just rambling, bouncing, but we get so excited about a topic sometimes, it's hard not to. But I, I didn't know there was actual plans. I thought we bounced all the time. No, no, no. This is usually scripted, tightly scripted. Oh. Yeah. So speaking of improvising scenes, Bill Murray had no scripted dialogue. All of mm-hmm. his scenes are improvised. We're based on just, you know, here's a suggestion, go. Uh, a lot of the stuff was just him riffing, including the famous, well, two, two moments stand out, of course, his, you know, well-known Dalai Lama speech was improvised yep. on the spot. And the... Other, and, you know, the equally as memorable Cinderella speech where he is, you know, teeing off at the flowers with a, a, a grass whip. They gave him very little notes and, and he just went for it. And it was, and all of it is so fantastic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They basically said, narrate your own sports story. Yeah. That's all he said to him. Yeah. And he goes, um, give me some, uh, give me four rows of flowers here. <laughs> so that's what I need. Is that and right? Actually, did, did he yeah. ask for the flowers? Yeah, actually, I, I've read that he actually asked for the flowers mm. because he must have, it must have sparked something that he wanted to do. So Yeah, and so very quickly, as you were pointing out early on, you know, starting this conversation was Caddyshack evolves into something that is beyond uh, Animal House on a golf course, beyond a story that's simply about the caddies. Because originally, the idea was that the story was going to focus on the coming of age of Danny. Danny is right. moving on from high school, looking to go to college or something, do something with his life beyond working as a caddy and, and you know, graduating from high school. But when you've got these huge stars in, in the film, including, you know, Murray and Dangerfield and Chase, they've realized they've got to have more set pieces involving these folks and open the whole thing up and it comes very broad. And I read that um, in, as a way of thinking about how to, you know, maintain these different stories and sort of vignettes was to think about those three stars that we just mentioned as the Marx brothers, as a way to, you know, Mm -hmm. if you're familiar with those films, as a way of those, that sort of, you know, uh, the iconic types of roles or the, you know, iconographic, I think is a word, characters that these would play, how they would fit into the sort of overall, you know, tale and the chemistry. So um, they thought of, According to Harold Ramis, he thought of Dangerfield as Groucho, Murray as Harpo, and Chase as Chico. And it's Chico. It's not Chico. It's Chico. I'm a huge Marx Brothers fan. It's Chico as Chico. Uh, And then watching the film, knowing that, I can see now, you know, how that would, how that sort of, is perfect. And uh, the the, the crappy part about the whole thing is, is these guys who played the caddies and uh, Danny Noonan, uh, Michael O'Keefe, they thought this was going to make them huge stars. Okay. They thought this was their ticket. Um. Got Columby, uh, yeah, and uh, their lines kept getting cut, yeah, or they get stepped on. Like right. they would say their their line, and then like Dangerfield or Chevy would step on their line with an improv. So instead of them getting the last word, they're not the funny guy anymore. Yeah, so they were not happy about that. Oh, I see. Yeah, I didn't know that. Now, uh, Cindy Morgan tells some stories. You know, when we talked to her later about some of the scenes that she did and how she was put up to do some things that, you know, she, I'm not going to ruin anything, but she tells a story about uh, some of the scenes where she wasn't even, she didn't even, she wasn't in on the, on the jokes, you know, but allowed her to appreciate sort of the brilliance of these folks and ha- putting her in a position where she had to, you know, figure out ways to keep up with these giants because this was her first film as well. And she's amazing in it. Yeah. She de- you would definitely not know that she definitely holds her own, uh, you know, opposite these folks. Some other interesting things that uh, we learned about this film, again, that it wasn't the film it ultimately was, and thank goodness, a small detail that's a fan favorite that you would have thought was there from the beginning is the presence of the gopher. Yeah, most people would have thought that that was a major uh, plot point from the, the beginning, but it's not. Right. In fact, if you keep an eagle eye out, you'll realize that the couple of scenes that they shot, when they shot the film, they shot the gopher only, I think it was two times, and the gopher looks very different than the gopher that we know 
you know, most uh, well from the, the moments where we see the gopher close up and dancing. So there's a scene where Carl is, you know, Bill Murray as the groundskeeper, Carl is sticking a hose in one gopher hole to try to flush it out. And the gopher pops out of a hole in the background. That's a hand puppet. And then there's another moment where uh, Ted Knight, oh, you didn't even mention Ted Knight. So yeah, Ted Knight, yeah. who's, you know, the ultimate straight man who by, by most, uh, you know, accounts, and I think Cindy Morgan may even talk about this, the, the, the main folks that we've been talking about, these comedic actors, you know, were having fun and improvising and, you know, uh, playing really loose. Ted Knight was, you know, sticking tight to the script and growing frustrated by, you know, sort of how cavalier these folks were with, uh, you know, the setups, etc. That's that one story. But, you know, having seen Ted Knight on Mary Tyler Moore and then ultimately even on Too Close for Comfort, I don't think he necessarily gets the credit uh, that he's due that to the extent that he understood, I believe, uh, look, this is just me as a viewer, what was going on in his role in making these things funny? I think he he, he was, he, he know what he needed to do. Yeah, I think in the, in the movie part of it, he was fine. I think his problem was all the partying and drugs and the late night wow. shenanigans. Right. He was not happy with their professionalism. I see. You're right. But on, but on screen, he's a professional. Yep. He did exactly what he needed to do, and there's a lot of improv from him, too, in this movie. You're right, because uh, notoriously, uh, Caddyshack, the, the folks were having even more fun off-screen. Harold Ramis said, you know, this is one of the early films he worked on, that if film, if this is how it is to make all films, you know, he's going to have a great, a wonderful career, because it's a ball. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, drug use was run amok, and, you know, the socializing party was sort of out of control, so much that the studio heads were, were concerned that they had, uh, like, a literal animal house you know, but behind the scenes and not necessarily in front of the camera. Back to the gopher, though, you know, I paused to make sure we gave Ted Knight his due. So the gophers in one scene and the other only other scene that I think is the original gopher is when Ted Knight says that that kangaroo stole my ball. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's Rodney. Oh, it's Rodney, right. When Rodney, right, it is Rodney. (laughs) Of course it's Rodney. (laughs) At the end, when they're doing the tournament, uh, Rodney says that kangaroo stole my ball. That's also the hand puppet, but otherwise it's this brilliant gopher, uh, animatronic that was made after they had shot the film when they realized, uh, they needed something to pull this story together that they had now cobbled together, carved out of this bigger block of a, what it was a four and a half hour film that they weren't really yeah. sure what to make of. And they kept whittling it down and they were just like, right. Oh my God, this movie sucks. How do we tie it together? <laughs> Right, so introduce the gopher. And they, they call upon a legend of special effects. Uh, one of the founding you know, members of Industrial Light, Mag- Light and Magic, who one of the critical pieces of technology used to make special effects in the early Star Wars films, you know, and for years after, the Dykstra Flex camera. The gentleman who inv- helped invent that, John Dykstra himself, is brought in for a much more humble but important task, creating a semi-lifelike but, uh, you know, uh, not, not fully, but very articulated animatronic gopher that can express itself and, above all, dance. <laughs> so they, they bring John in and, he, and they wind up shooting these scenes well after the film is wrapped to tie this together. And it worked out brilliantly. And you'd never know it, but Bill Murray and the, this animatronic gopher aren't ever in a scene together. They just cut it together to seem as if they are. Yeah, and that's called good editing. Yes, and so I don't know. We've been talking for, for we've been talking for like four and a half hours. <laughs> we're gonna need that. We're gonna need the, the Caddyshack editor for this one. We need a gopher. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna need a gopher. Uh, I wish I had a gopher well, puppet here. Well, before we end this part, though, yeah. do you have a favorite quote from this movie? Oh my gosh! Well, as you know, you and I often use. Well, I got that going for me. Often we often say yep. that. And I got that going for me. Which uh, is nice. Eh, that's mostly it. Yeah. I also use. Uh, well, the world needs ditch diggers too. <laughs> <laughs> I can see you saying that to work to your employees. I say that a lot at work. And I also say, uh, you know, I got that going for me, yeah, which is nice. Which is nice. I say that a lot at work. Which is nice. I think our entire company uses that phrase yeah. a lot. I would imagine, you know, because I know you work with a lot of young folks at your full-time job as a podcaster. Right, right. A lot when of we're the, hanging out by the water cooler. A lot the of other the, podcasters. I would think some of those you know, young whippersnappers don't know that it's a quote from a movie. But technically, anyone who works with me, yeah. I automatically give them a list of movies. I see. And I say, you, you have to go watch these because I don't want to have to explain any references I make. And they're all 80s movies. So here you go. Watch them. Like, they get their list of things they're supposed to know. 
I see. But I put the, the movies on top. Is this part of the interview process? Yeah, this is this is day one. I want to work with you as a full-time podcast. Oh, wait, I do. I do do that. <laughs> we do. Yeah, that's... Hey, we're living the dream. Okay, so hey, if you've got any thoughts about Caddyshack, let us know. Maybe you hate it. Then I don't like you. No, then that's fine. You can not like it. Let us know on Facebook. We're there as the idiots, of course, or on Twitter, Instagram, all those places. And while you're listening to this show, take a moment and rate and or review us. It'll take you literally 30 seconds, but to us, it means the world. And while you're doing that, enjoy a nice little short piece of music, because right after that, we'll be right back with our guest today, star of Caddyshack and Tron, Ms. Cindy Morgan. Our guest today made her feature film debut opposite comedy legends in one of the most popular movies of the 1980s, Caddyshack. And two years later, she appeared in dual roles in the groundbreaking and now prescient film Tron. Additionally, she appeared in a number of our 80s TV favorites, including Chips, The Fall Guy, and Amazing Stories. Today, she maintains the control and power over her life and brand that you'd expect from any of her iconic characters. Visit cindymorgan.com to learn more. Please welcome to the show, Cindy Morgan. Hey, Cindy, how are you doing? Doing great, Will. How about you? I'm, I'm doing well, too. Thank you for talking to us today. So our show has set out to prove objectively that the 1980s was the best decade for pop culture. Period. Uh We'll fight your decade. You have empirical scientific (laughs) evidence proving this. Yes, we're working working on that. But we are speaking to folks, experts like yourself, who appeared in some of the iconic media that we love from the 1980s. And we actually do speak with the occasional professor and uh, author that gives us some more of that uh, empirical data. Well, to tell you the truth, it was was a special time. It was a lot of the scary things had just started happening. It was right between Mm -hmm. the 50s where everything was wrong and the 60s (laughs) where everything exploded and the 70s where there was a lot of experimentation and the 80s things started to get a little serious, well, a lot more serious with certain things and then by the 90s and and the 2000s, well, look 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 at today. Yeah. So, yeah, and it seems it seems to me that, and again, we did speak with some uh, political science uh, professors and some con- we spoke with a congressman even about that time. That it was interesting. It's interesting that the media seemed almost you know in, in stark contrast. You know, where we had these bright poppy songs and fun movies right. where we had folks right. you know in the middle class suffering because factories were closing. You know, that's right. It, it's curious to me, but it seems to be the case. You know, so maybe everything in the eighties wasn't great, but it birthed you know much like in the Renaissance, right? Some great media. But you're of a different generation. You know, you're a little bit older than I am. Mm-hmm. So that's a polite way of saying. <laughs> <laughs> so what would what would you so I consider myself a kid of the 80s. I was born at the beginning of the 70s, but I, you know, uh-huh. I went I went from being a what they'd call a tween now to being a, an adult by the end of the 80s. And but, that's where you make a lot of decisions, fall in love with a lot of things. That's where you know you start formatting how you what you love, what yeah. you like, what what you want to do, your avocations, possibly your vocations. So what what would you consider you to be a child of or what was your generation? It, it all blew open for me uh, when I went to college. I had 12 years of Catholic school, very tightly uh restricted and like literally every breath out of my butt. But luckily in high school, uh, it was an all girls Catholic high school, but luckily uh, I was uh, put into AP, AP, well, they didn't call it then, but AP classes. So there were 30 of us together for four years and we had different reading lists. And because we all were so, we were together in all of our classes. What the nice thing was, it was was really hard on on the nuns because <laughs> we worked as a unit. It was it was like that um, gosh uh, that, that that old movie Stalag Seventeen. We <laughs> really had you know yeah okay we'll do that and then we do whatever the heck we wanted because they put all of us together in one class. They took mm. the top ten percent of all the students. So I learned a lot about a lot of things. And then when I got to college, I actually was offered a grant from uh, the state of Illinois to go to 
the Illinois Institute of Technology and really wanted to go because I wanted for my father to become a mechanical engineer. Mm. And I walked in and it was all guys and four girls, which I understand it still is. (laughs) And I I was uh, I went into college with a stammer, a distinct stammer. And uh, I made a hard left, went to Northern Illinois University and uh, majored in I was a terrible speaker, but but I was a good writer. And, and, And the first time a professor ever came over and said, you know, you're good at this. Consider communications. I, I, I came on and broadcast. I was actually writing news professionally while I was in school. I imagine that would be terrifying to, you know, as you say, if you had a stammer at the time to be suggested to go into communications. Then. Well, I, I didn't think of it as terrifying. I, I, I more looked at the path. I, I more looked okay. at what was right in front of me. And, and, and communications was, at that time, three separate things. It was the uh, psychology behind making a speech, how to engage an audience. That's one element. Broadcasting was one element. And speech pathology was an element. So there were several elements of, of communications that they took apart. And it worked well with me. I came in with a stammer and came out and broadcast. So it worked. (laughs) It sounds like the different, uh, you know, those three different areas that you mentioned uh, played nicely into ultimately, I imagine, into acting, uh, including the psychology. Well, yeah, it it actually does uh, because uh, pretty much what they, the psychology behind, I can break it down really simply with Shakespeare's friends, Romans and countrymen, lend me your ears. Now, everybody knows those lines, but they don't know why Shakespeare had Mark Antony say that. He's walking into a hostile crowd. Right. Think about this in politics. He's walking into a crowd that said, we just killed Caesar and you're his friend and we don't want to hear anything out of here. So he comes out and says, hey, look, friends, Romans, and countrymen, I, I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. Uh, of course, Caesar made all of you rich and conquered half the world, but Brutus is a good man. And of course, you know, Caesar did this and the other thing for you, and now you can all eat. But Brutus is a good man. But it's, so what it is, is finding the common, den- it, it, in not a sneaky way, in a practical way, finding the common denominator with the people you're speaking to, because there's always a human common denominator. Heck, I was outside feeding baby ducks today. I found a, I found the common denominator. Don't chase, don't chase them <laughs> and throw the food. To, you know, you can find if you can find that. That's how to communicate. That because communication doesn't mean talking. It means right. getting your point across as intended. And I imagine the this skill again with communication and, and like you said, finding a connection helps not only with being a better performer, but you know, working in the audition room. So you got some producers or directors in there. How do you connect oh, yeah. with them to get them on your win them over? I suppose, right? I would. My imagine. meetings are always better than my readings <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it's such an awkward, uh, bizarre setup, and I actually worked as an associate producer on the other side and i always had the feeling that everybody just got there and nobody really knew what they were doing well when i was on the other side of the desk i found out that's actually the case (laughs) and it's and the person who got the job was not the person who did a a, a detailed study of a character unless they are a character actor the person who got the job was the one who was most comfortable in their own Mm. skin and the one who could talk who, who could go through the reading with the same tone and the same energy as they did when they were just having a conversation. Now, this is a lesson, though. You're an associate producer later, later, I imagine, right? After you've been acting. Oh, yeah. So this is a, so at the time you're a young actor starting out. Was this a natural? Was this already something that you understood or had a gift for being? No, I never wanted to be an actor. No, no. I took some acting classes in college. and was like, yikes. No, I'm, I'm out of here. Uh, but, but broadcasting made sense because it was yeah. a job. Uh, uh, at the end, I was doing morning drive in Chicago. And I, I pity the DJ who came on after me because I wouldn't play crap. <laughs> I just, I just, I just, I know. And, and then the program director would call me in and said, well, yeah, you know, the carpenters. I said, we're a rock and jazz station. <laughs> I could hear the commercials for the carpenters. So I could put two and two together, but, yeah. but no, you know, and we got into the biggest fight because um, uh, the publicist, now this is an old TV show, Beretta sure. and Beretta, Beretta's bird. Yep. But Brad's Bird's publicist wanted to put him on my show. I thought this is hilarious. I'm going to get this bird on my show. I want to do this. And, and I went in and I, I talked to the program director, who was the owner's son. Those, those are tough arguments. And, and he goes, Cindy, birds can't talk. And I'm like, really, Terry? Birds can't talk? I said, the deal is I can do anything I want. This is radio. 
No, no, no. So after that day, at the end of every news segment, because I pulled wire copy and did my own news, at the end of every news segment, it would be, and today's animal story is, because every si- Now, the Chicago audience didn't know what I was up to, but they knew I was up to something. <laughs> you knew that by, by your reputation or by having listened yeah, to it? Yeah, just, just by the way I, I handled it. And, and, and then I get called into the office every day. And I'd sit and lean in the doorway and I'd go, yes, Terry, yes, Terry, yes. How am I ratings? Good. See you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, thinking again about, you know, you're talking about how acting, you know, you weren't for it. Uh, at some point you go, I know you, you will go to L.A. To just, and among the many oh, things no. you do. Oh, I'm sorry. It, go ahead. it wasn't. It wasn't that I loved acting. No. It was I was working at that radio station with no, Gary, yeah. my boss, and I was making one hundred and thirty-five dollars a week right. doing morning drive in Chicago, pulling numbers against the big boys. <laughs> and they, yeah. I got a call one Saturday, and uh, from this guy, and he says, "I'm taking away your overtime, and I'm giving it to some guy." Mm. And I said, "Really?" And there's a rumor that I walked out leaving a, a record spinning. I don't think that's entirely true, but that's what let me know that I had to make a change. And in Chicago, nobody would let me go on camera. Nobody would let me do commercials. You're the voice on the radio. Forget it. So I went out to L.A. and I just didn't tell anybody I couldn't act. Uh, I got an Irish. Yeah, I just left that out of the conversation. I did go into my agent's office and pulled the resumes of people I recognized, flipped them over and saw where they studied. Mm-hmm. And I took a couple of those classes, which was a good thing because yeah. I lost my disc jockey voice because everything sounded like this. You know, I had to get rid of that right away. And I took a comedy improv class and that stayed my butt for mm. Caddyshack. So so I got an Irish Spring commercial about the time I got out of my car, like within the first month, wow. which which was helpful. And then uh, in eight months, I got Caddyshack. Wow. So, wow. Okay. So again, go, what I was going to su- suggest or ask is, you know, you said in school acting, you weren't for, but suddenly you're now auditioning, you know, for a film that's got some huge stars in it, you know, that were starting to right. break through at that time. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, again, I imagine it would be intimidating, especially considering the, you know, what you've given us as your history there. You know what? For example, if I do a press junket in the city and they say, oh, let's listen to the station. They're going to promote you. I know. Leave that radio off. I don't want to hear it. I want to walk in, clean, do my job, just like their people. So when I knew I was working with these actors, I stopped watching them. I wouldn't watch their work. I, I, mm. I, so that I, I could walk on a set, and there they are, and there I am. I know why I'm there. I know why they're there, and that's it. And it was much easier to do my job because to me it was it's a job, you right. know? Yeah. It, and, 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 you know, I can be all impressed about them later. Right now, right. I got to do my job, and Lacey Underall wasn't wasn't you know the kind of person who could be all impressed. She had a, in fact, right. she was quite the opposite. She was yes. like, "This is you're all really boring and getting on my nerves." <laughs> so. so when you're when you audition for Caddyshack, at some point, are you yeah. auditioning against uh, uh, Chevy Chase and some of the, this, your your co stars? And and uh, well. I had a, I had a first audition, and the thing is, I remember reading the script. And I went, well, I'll never get this job. This isn't me. Twelve years, remember, twelve years of Catholic girls school had a stammer. I was <laughs> right. fixed up with cousins for for both of my proms. I mean, <laughs> okay, I never, I got nothing to lose. I can do whatever I want in that audition. I got nothing to lose. Well, thank God I had that attitude because I was like, yeah, this is fine. This is fun. On the last audition, though, I started getting a little nervous because I was the only one who signed in to read for the role of Lacey. I went, holy crap, you think they think they think they think they think they can do this? I mean, what are they crazy? And I walked out of the parking lot, hyperventilating, walking around, walking around. I went, all right, I thought, all right, forget about the lines, forget about the job, just do one thing. Whoever you're reading with and hope it's a guy, make them sweat, look them dead in the eye. And, and <laughs> women, women know how to do that. And so all I focused, and I was reading with Doug Kenny. And when I looked at Doug, I, I looked straight through him. And and when he started sweating, I knew I had the job. Uh, that, that's amazing. That's an amazing lesson for probably, I don't know, a lot of things. I love hearing stories about folks who it seems like, you know, there was a path to what they were going to do. You know, like all those little things mm-hmm. that, you you know, the school, the stammering, communications lead you to this point where you're able to it's be ridiculous. present. Yeah. Nobody who knows me could believe it. I mean, there's like this big gap. <laughs> like how? And so, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I look and go, I don't know how the hell I did that. I really don't. So initially it, it was surprising to me a lot, you know, stuff that we love from the eighties. It's always surprising yeah. to me to look back and, and see that at the time it wasn't as well received as it is today. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, Caddyshack tank. 
Yeah. It's, it, you know, it's, it, I think, I don't know that most folks, you know, casually would, would think that because it's so huge now. And I really struggle to understand sort of like what the evolution of something is to becoming, you know, from like, as you say, something that tanked to cult status. What do you think? There's a lot of reasons. One of the big ones, and, and this is, some, well, the rumor and the truth is that uh, it, with the exception of two people who were on the crew, right. uh, everybody was high every day. <laughs> so, so, well, we actually, not that I'm recommending that uh, or advising that because a couple <laughs> of good friends died oh. shortly. I, I had mm. my, my agent from William Morris passed away. Wow. Doug Kenny passed away, as you know. Mm. Um, so, I mean, it's not something I'd recommend. But, but sure. the, the truth is, we were actually having a good time. And you can't fake that. You can't fake organically actually having a good time. And we were having the best time. I tell everybody about the piano scene. We, I was in a hot house in Florida with Chevy with the old giant Klieg lights. It was just so hot. I mean, they kept touching up my makeup. And and they were, uh, Harold Ramos said, uh, come over here and sit down next to Chevy by the piano. I said, why? <laughs> we got to that point. Why? And he goes, just do it. Just do it. He goes, say, sing me a love song. I said, fine. So I said, sing me a love song. Now watch my eyes. And he starts playing the song, launches into the song, snorts the salt, tears the, tears the tequila, and I, you can tell when I realize we're shooting a scene mm. because all of a, I laugh to myself. I look down and go, oh, I get it. Because out of the corner of my right eye, I saw the damn red. red they saw the camera right on. That's how I found out we were shooting a scene. I didn't know we were filming. You know, I just thought they were being goofballs again, you know. <laughs> but, now, I wonder, is, is, was that something that uh, Chevy was in on? Was it just to get get a certain reaction out of you? Whereas at uh, that point in time, I couldn't tell you the truth. Okay. I, w- I he may or may not have been. They just asked me to go sit down, and he was going to do something. I'm like, yeah, all right, you know. And 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 people go, oh, why did it, weren't you laughing all the time? No, that wasn't my job to laugh. My job was to be lazy. So <laughs> so you know the the and quite frankly, it's it's like playing sports. I'm sure you play a sport or or, or do something with games, yeah. video games. Or, yeah, sure, okay, yeah. And, and when you're doing it and you're doing it well, people say, aren't you having a good time? Well, yes and no. Yes. Yeah, kind of. But you're still working really, really hard. Your focus is 180 percent there. Right. You know, so, yeah, you're having a good time, but you're also putting your heart and soul into it. Yeah. So and, and because you didn't have so you were you had at that point studied acting at least somewhat. Right. Because you said you checked oh, out yeah, the resume. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. Thank God. I, I had a couple classes. I got rid of that disc jockey voice. That was one class. Right. And I studied with a guy named Harvey Lembeck. His son, Michael, is is a, is a director. Sure. And uh, he was he was a, a vaudeville. He was trained by Phil Silvers, who came from the vaudeville method. Who came, there, sure. there actually were comedy rules. Right. And, and if, you, if you, it's like music. If you break it down. I mean, you're either funny or you're not, or you can walk in and be funny and you won't even know you're being funny. I know people like that, too. Uh, that would have been Ted Knight's case. He really wasn't planning on being funny by being straight man to Rodney. That wasn't his plan. But, but, but he, he would yell at me. I mean, I would get sick before every class because he'd go, Morgan, Morgan, stop going for the joke. You're the straight. You set up the joke. Mm-hmm. And thank God he did. Because going head-to-head against Chevy would have been really stupid. Uh, well, actually, we did go head-to-head. There were a couple of times we were fighting. And uh, th- those were the, that was the best work we did, by the way. Mm. I imagine, yeah. Because, yeah. Uh, because yeah, well, you get your ad- adrenaline up and you your focus up. And if you play with somebody better than you, do you bring your A game or do you go home? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, knowing what I know, just knowing what I've learned about you in the last few minutes here, I, I know I know where, to, where you went. Um, and Harvey Lembeck, <laughs> okay. uh, Harvey Lembeck, by the way, you mentioned Stalag 17. He was in he was on the stage and screen versions of Stalag 17. Oh, he remarkably bright and on the money and just knew it by instinct. What I understand of uh, improv and what I hear you saying and my own limited experience with that is that uh, what a great way to learn how to be fearless, you know, in, in, in just straight acting. Well, you, you, you just take that fear and you turn it into adrenaline and shove it someplace else. You drive it into the scene. Use the fear. Don't, don't ignore it. Use it. But, but use it for, for something you can, you can do it with it. Yeah, it was it – was, uh, we never the, – the script in Caddyshack, it was, well, thrown away. You know the original story was about the Caddies, right? Yes, and based on, uh, on Harold Ramis and, and, the, and the Murrays and yes. Oh, yeah, and, and – uh, all of a sudden, here here come four of the funniest men on the planet, Rodney Dangerfield, who didn't really 
care a thing about script. What script? He was just he just would roll through a scene like a comic juggernaut, saying whatever the heck popped into his head. And Ted Knight's holding onto the script, going, "But I got lines, I got lines," you know. You know and, and Ted was legitimately angry. By the end of the film, we all kind of had evolved into versions of our characters. So the improv became less and less of a challenge because there we were. <laughs> So just a couple of years after that, of course, you're in another iconic, very different film in the 1980s. Oh, probably, yeah. probably couldn't have two more different, you know, and huge, you know, certainly by today's standards, uh, films. Tron, mm-hmm. You're in Tron. Uh, you're right. Where you play Laura slash Yuri because you're you're Laura in the real world. And then that sort of Wizard of Oz sort of, you know, dreamlike version. That's, of uh, Yeah, that's the way I used to describe when I had to do the press junket. That's mm-hmm. the, because I had no frame of reference. I would say it's like the Wizard of Oz. You're in the black and white world. That's your real world. And then suddenly you're in this other world, the computer world, where it's vividly beautiful. And you meet some of the people that you knew before. Because if you're a computer programmer, it picks up some of your thoughts, some of your inclinations, some of your recognitions. And it was really another reason it was really hard to do for the exact opposite. It didn't make any sense at all. Well, it's interesting, you know, the way you describe Wizard of Oz, this idea we move from black and white to color. It's interesting yeah. to me that you say that because I know that, you know, the the real world stuff was in color and the, the computer stuff was shot in black and white, my understanding, just so they can do yeah. those effects. When, oh, yeah. It, yeah, it was. Speaking of auditioning, when you auditioned for Tron, Tron was a breakthrough for many things, including the use of computer generated images. Right. So, but at, at a time where, you know, it only had been used a few times in film prior to that, did you even in an audition process, are they explaining or testing you in a way to see if you're going to be able to act against nothing, essentially? Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, actually, it was from uh, Harvey Lembeck's class. I was dating one of the guys mm. in one of the classes, and he took me to this. He took me to lunch at the Chronicle restaurant in uh, Venice, California, and he was with some people because he was going to be in this cartoon. And I was having lunch, uh, you know, and I'm listening and they're talking about this cartoon. And I went, oh, okay, that's great. You know, and I went away to do Caddyshack. And I didn't work for a long time because John Peters made good on his promise to blacklist me. He, I, I will never blanking work again because I would never, wouldn't shoot mm-hmm. the new thing for Playboy. I just said, no, I, I agreed to this. I can't do that. And also I had enough background in film just from the communication cut that I knew they wouldn't get a good still for like 20, 30 years. So uh, I said, I said, no, you know, uh-uh. and they sent him anyway, screaming and yelling. And I didn't work for a long time afterwards. And then all of a sudden I get this call to go meet with the director and Jeff Bridges, who I didn't remember and Jeff Bridges and put me on camera to test. Wow. And I was, and I, and it was terrible. <laughs> it, was awful. I, I, it made no sense. It was physical. The words made no sense. And, mm. and, and I got the job. What I didn't realize was that lunch I went to, yep. w- uh, the guy I was dating, uh, Tron originally, uh, Flynn and Tron were the same character. This, this act, Larry, Larry Anderson is the actor who I, still is a, a, a sweet guy. Like Many years later, I said, Larry, was that Tron? And he goes, yes, and I never took another actress to lunch again. <laughs> <laughs> he was out, I was in. Uh, but, but, but I, you know, I didn't take his, but that's, what, that's how I got that job, eating lunch. I see. That makes sense, too, because I had read that read how uh, Steven Lisberger was originally planning it to make it an animated film until he started yeah. learning about the technology that was available uh, yeah. to make that, it what it was, what it became. That's right. And so you bring up John Peters, and I won't say another word if you don't want no, to. No, go one, ahead. Go, go ahead. You say anything you want. I've got, I've got more to say than you can imagine. <laughs> well, I noticed in the past you've been reluctant to talk about it, but you know we're living a different world now, a somewhat different well, world. Well, now that I mean. everybody knows what, who, who and yes. what he is. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah you know, and, and it wasn't just that John Peters was so bad. It was that I called my agent and I said, help me. Right. And he said, honey, you're not a doe-eyed girl from the Midwest. Handle it. Oh, boy. So I boy. came back and fired him, <laughs> and he became a head of cast, casting at ABC, and mm. I never got another job at ABC except once when it mm. sort of slipped through. You know, you know, it, people not only don't protect you, if you dare to speak up and defend yourself right. and then walk away from them for not doing their job when they should have been sued, just walk away, they will get even with you forever. And let me tell you something. We had a little conversation about something that I won't go into in detail right. during this live broadcast. Right. That exact thing happened there. Somebody did mm. something. I said, you can't do that. That's not what the contract says. And they said, I am doing that. And I said, well, then you can't be part of this deal. And they made sure that I was X'd out of the deal, wow. which is illegal. And um, sure. 
quite frankly, I don't like to sue people. It takes a lot of time. It's very exhausting. It's not in my nature. But I think there's a criminal charge. Yeah. What happened to you, you know, the terrible thing that happened to you so many years ago. It's still happening today. It's never, ever over. Trust the only difference between now and then is that people are being a little more careful uh, about what they say and what's in the contract. But it's still happening today. It's in the last month. I can, I can, you know, not that I'll stay now, but yeah, it's still happening. So I had planned to ask you if now, you know, with the Me Too movement, you felt somewhat vindicated or or experiencing PTSD. PTSD does come up uh, and every so often, for example, uh, the, the time I really felt it is when um, there was the um, well, it didn't affect women. It affected men. But it's the Penn State thing that happened about five years ago right. where they and the, the the man who actually had to tell the truth because he was called before a grand jury had to leave the state. What happens in a situation like that, people think the incident is the worst thing that could possibly happen. Just so you know, the cover-up is far worse. Mm. Uh, well, I, uh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that you had to go through that, obviously. it's It ain't over, pal. Well, <laughs> well, <laughs> but, but, but here's the thing. I went home that night when John Peters took away my paid ads and my billing and my agent didn't stand up for me, and I knew that I wouldn't work for a long time. After I did that scene, and it was a very tough scene to do. I, and, and in fact, goofy John Peters actually kind of did me a favor because I was afraid of that scene. And by the way, you're never completely nude. You make friends with your wardrobe department. They'll never get the shot they want. Mm. Uh, believe me. I, you know, I know where the camera is. I know where the lights are. But he made me so angry that he took away everything I had. And I said, he broke my contract, but I knew they already had enough film in the can and they couldn't go back and reshoot. Right. So I walked in there and I cleared that set myself. I said, I want to see, I want to see four people that director. They have the old camera. So I said, that director of photography is going to be the camera operator. We need a focus puller. We need that director and and that actor. And until then I got all day, take your time. Mm. I learned a lot of new words that day. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll tell yep. you something. That was the only damn way I could do my job. Get yep. the hell out of my set. Right. This is a job. Get get out of here. And there were people behind the drapes, under the bed. You know, this, it was just, you know, get out of here. And, and I grew up a, a blue-collar kid. You know, I, I worked for my dad in the factory. It's the same thing. You know, I got a job to do. Get out. <laughs> in a situation like that, I suppose you have to exert whatever power or control you can because so much of it yeah. is they're trying to take away. And you know something? There was backup. The, I remember my hairdresser, you know, they, they looked at my contract. They said, honey, you don't have to do that. The photographer was sent to this. You, you, the photographer was there. And by the way, I don't have a problem with Playboy. Playboy is a legitimate modeling agency in the city of Chicago. I mean, like for catalogs and things like that. And, and, and one of the photographers I knew is still a friend of mine. You know I mean? It, but what they were trying to do was something else and take something else. And I went home that night and I looked in the mirror thinking, okay, you just threw this all away. But can I tell you something? I could look myself in the eye. Wow. It was the best thing I ever did. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, here's the good news. Yeah. I'm still standing mm-hmm. and the bitch is back. <laughs> how many, how many Alton John songs can you name? <laughs> Speaking of great songs from the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Cindy's yeah. decided that, that she's firing all of her texts because she's tired of them speaking. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking about myself in the third person. That sounds crazy. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm tired. I'm tired of being uh, hijacked by technicians and so on and so on and so on. I've taken over my website. I'm redesigning it. And by the way, uh, with GoDaddy, it's like putting together a Facebook page. So, in, in talking about the internet and how you know you're taking this control over your your own uh, brand, yeah, um, yeah. At some point, because Tron was not only a breakthrough technologically speaking, but it was you know somewhat prescient as far as how caught up folks oh, yeah. would be in this virtual world. At some, oh god, yeah. At some point in the years since. It sort of snuck up on us, but is there at some point where you start thinking, this is kind of getting like Tron? And, uh, you have no idea how much I think about yeah. that <laughs> and, and uh, how exactly it, it has become, yeah. You know, it, it, it's like Orwell's 1984. Yeah. It's, it's, we're, way past, we're looking at 1984 in the rearview mirror. Uh, yeah, the, the, the master control program is all over the damn place. And that's where taking responsibility, common sense, having ground under your feet. No, it, it's really hard to, to say, I know this to be true. Mm. And this is where I can bend, but I can't bend anymore on this one because I'll break. 
Right. So you got you got to know how far you, I'm. I'm not pushy, but I won't let someone break me because that belongs to me. Right. So CindyMorgan.com is yes. where, yeah, where you can find me. I'm real easy to find. And so we've got so much technology now that can you know again, China's prescient in, in that sense. How are you using it to your advantage now? In uh, you've got this background in communications. We've got great platforms like podcasts. Any thoughts about having a program of your own where you? Uh, I'm glad you suggested program? that because because yep. why the heck not? You know, I meet some really cool people. The, one of the best things about the autograph shows I get to do. Is the, when you're sitting on the other side of the table or you're in the green room, you meet the coolest people. Can I drop a few names? Because you're going to need a big shovel to pick these up. <laughs> I, 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 I was sitting at a show and, and, and I had to move a sweater so William Shatner could sit, sit, sit down. And there's <laughs> Richard Dreyfus standing over there. And then there's there's wow. Toby McGuire over there. And, and I'm just like, just breathe. Yeah, just breathe. You belong here. I don't know why, but you're here. So that is so fun. That the best because we're all fans down deep inside. That's where the passion comes from, I think. Yes. You gotta love what you do. And Cindy, we are a fan of yours and we've loved what you did in the nineteen eighties. And uh with that I will say thank you so much for your time today. Uh such a fun and enlightening interview. Well, uh I, I thank you for stopping me from talking because I'd still be talking. I'd talking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This was a pretty exciting episode. Uh, not only were we able to talk about one of the most classic, well-known, well-regarded films of the 1980s, Caddyshack, but were then able to speak with one of the stars, Cindy Morgan, who played the, speaking her, very delightful, and she played the equally lovely character of Lacey Underhill on the film. Fantastic. Very exciting episode. But put that all aside, or put it all in your computer-like processor of a brain, and compute, if you will, for me, what, if anything, we actually proved. Well, we have proven one thing. Oh, yeah? For sure. Oh, yeah. okay. We have proven mm-hmm. beyond a shadow of a doubt wow. that the greatest golf movie of all time wow. is from the 1980s. Wow. Yes. We didn't even touch on that because we don't have to. You're right. It's proven. Yeah. We didn't even have to talk about the golf part of yeah. it because- it's the, the greatest backstory for the greatest uh, golf movie of all time. So Absolutely. And we will talk to you next time on The Idiots. See ya.